KBTC, a viewer-supported community service of Bates Technical College. From KBTC Public Television Studios in Tacoma, Washington, it's the Northwest Now podcast. Each week, we take a closer look at the people and issues that affect all of us here in Western Washington. So sit back, relax, and join the conversation with your host, Tom Lason. Dr. Kim Schreier flipped the 8th Congressional District to the Democrats back during the 2018 blue wave. The question now is, can she keep Republican challenger Matt Larkin from flipping it back? The race for the 8th Congressional District is the discussion next on Northwest Now. Analysts say Washington's 8th Congressional District is in play, and the national PAC money that's flowing into the race between second-term incumbent Kim Schreier and challenger Matt Larkin seems to bear that out. The 8th has always been a swing district since it covers large swaths of the suburban west side and a good chunk of the rural east side as well. Schreier more than doubled Larkin's vote count in the primary, so the question is whether there are enough independent and Republican votes out there to make it a close election. Kim Schreier is a pediatrician from Sammamish. Representative Schreier, thanks for coming to Northwest Now. I, I want to start with the first question about your traveling, and we talked a little bit about that prior to this interview. Um, why do you want to do this again, traveling from a Western state in a perpetual election cycle of a House of Representatives um, member in a time of deep political um, division in this country? Why is it worth it to you? Uh, well, Tom, and you're asking when I just got off a plane about a half hour ago and, and just got to my apartment, you know, I, I am loving this job. Uh, I, it is such an honor to represent the people in the 8th District. I've met so many people who I otherwise would not have had the privilege to meet. And I think of this role uh, as a member of Congress in many ways uh, similar to being a pediatrician. Like I said, I would go to bat for my for my constituents, like I've always gone to bat for my patients. And so now on this broader scale, I'm going to bat for orchardists and hydropower engineers and going about for moms and dads and seniors. And, uh, you know, I've spent the past four years, uh, almost a hundred town halls, listening and learning and bringing those concerns to Congress and making sure I'm going to bat for my constituents and bringing home real results. Let's talk about those town meetings and about some of the constituencies you, you mentioned um, deliberately, I'm sure, orchardists and whatnot. I know you've done a lot of those meetings and I think suburban Democrats, you know, feel comfortable with your agenda, but how are you doing in more rural red portions of the eighth district, which makes that district kind of interesting? What are they telling you that they need that maybe doesn't necessarily align with the Democratic Party agenda all the time? And I, and I know you're way ahead in this race, but those folks need representation too. Um, you know, I, um, I knew when I came in in 2019 that there were uh, a couple counties in this district that really had the least faith that I would be the best possible representative for them. And right away, I came in and said, I'm going to join the Agriculture Committee. I am the only person from the whole Northwest uh, on the Agriculture Committee. And I did it specifically to be a representative for the farmers in this district. And let me just tell you, I mean, I heard in your question that skepticism. I have worked hand in glove with orchardists, with hay farmers, going to bat for them 
uh, because they're my constituents that, you know, that is my job. And so I have dived in, gotten dollars for research, brought the undersecretary out here, brought the chairwoman of my subcommittee to meet with probably 150 people from the ag community, everything from, you know, orchardist to Derek Sanderson at the Washington State Department of Agriculture, uh, to people involved in food security, so that they could be heard. And so I can be their best representative as we take on this next farm bill. And so um, I'll tell you, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a couple of hay farmers on TV right now vouching for me. And what I have heard is that they always took the other guys for granted, but I've done more for them than anybody else ever has. So here's a little bit of a pickle. Um, you you have those as your constituents. Um, you're a pediatrician, and we're in an era of these school shootings and mass shootings. I do think there's a, probably a fairly decent chance you may have a chance to vote on an assault weapons ban. When you think about all those things, Red Rural 8th District, um, your role as a pediatrician and this national problem of mass shootings, where do you where do you think you would come down on an assault weapons ban? Uh, I already voted to support an assault weapons ban, and I don't think it would surprise anybody out there uh, that a pediatrician would believe firmly that weapons of war do not belong in our neighborhoods and near our schools. Um, Talk a little bit more about your legislative accomplishments. What, what in your mind, when you tell people about what you've done in Washington, what do, what do you list off? And I know there, there's probably a lot of things that you've signed on to, but maybe you know your top couple. Well, I think it's important for people to know how much of a priority it is for me to work with both parties to get things done. And so I find partners in Republican doctors and other and Republican representatives from Western states to work on things like vaccine education, to work with other moms on nutrition and the WIC program during the pandemic, uh, to work with other doctors on getting a generic insulin to market, um, and also to work with, uh, as I mentioned, you know, Republicans from Western states on, uh, on fire resiliency, on making our forests healthier so that we can avoid these catastrophic wildfires. Um, so I think that's really important to know is that I seek out those partnerships and find them. Uh, and the other is that I've been a highly effective member of Congress just from a legislative standpoint, having 14 bills signed into law and eight of those were signed by President Trump and six by President Biden. Um, and then I would add to all that because there's so much to talk about that there have been these community projects that I've brought home to the 8th District that wouldn't have happened were it not for, for me and my office working hard, again, on behalf of the people here. Everything from a, a school-based health clinic in Graham to uh, wastewater treatment in Ellensburg to fire resiliency in Roslyn. And um, you know that's what you get when you put a pediatrician in Congress who listens and then takes those concerns to Congress. I bring home deliverables. Well, I'll, I'll give you a pass on picking one or two, but that's okay, because <laughs> I know you've got a list there. Um, you've been criticized a little bit for an ad where you say you took on the Biden administration for a gas tax holiday, but your legislative record, and not surprisingly, is a yes on American Rescue, Infrastructure, Inflation Reduction Act, total about four to five trillion dollars we're talking about in there. And you don't have to say it, I will. That's a lot of dollars chasing fewer goods and services. By nature, that's going to be inflationary. But here's, here's my question for you. 
What do you have in mind in terms of fiscal solutions, fiscal policy, fiscal things that you would support as a congressperson in the budget-making arm of the legislature to help take some of the sharp edges off inflation? Uh, let me just tell you that we are all feeling inflation. We're feeling it at the gas pump. We're feeling it at the grocery store. Uh, we're feeling it everywhere. And, um, and none of us are, are not feeling this impact. I have been working so hard. You know, if there were a magic bullet for inflation, uh, it would have happened already. Uh, but let me tell you some of the things I've been working on. One was indeed taking on the administration and early on, back in February, uh, introducing legislation to suspend the gas tax. Just to say, look, in the 8th district, people drive really far. We are an agricultural district. And, and, and so any relief we can get from these high gas prices will help my constituents. Uh, and that was a push on this administration. Um, I will tell you that I will also work with any administration if it is for the benefit of the 8th District. And so um, there are times when you work together and there are times when you have to push a little harder. And another one of those times is to stand up for the veterans in Wenatchee who are not getting the care they need from the VA. And so, look, my job is to represent and to go to bat for the people I represent. And part of that is, again, working with the administration, and part of it is pushing where I need to push. I'll ask it in a, in a different way and just reframe it. Does this country spend too much? You know, uh, the, when I interviewed, uh, when I, I, I interviewed with the Seattle Times, and when they, um, you know, wrote up our, our uh, interview and their editorial um, uh, endorsement, they said, you know, it kind of seems like there's been a collective amnesia in our country about where we were in January of 2020, when almost nobody had gotten a vaccine. Many kids were not yet back in the classroom. Small businesses were just hanging on by a thread. Some of them on the verge of closing, theaters, gyms, restaurants. Uh, we had people also hanging by a thread on the verge of being evicted. And what we did in the rescue plan was we helped Main Street stay afloat. We helped those small businesses stay afloat. We avoided not just a recession, but quite possibly a depression. We bounced our economy back faster than any other in the developed world. Uh, and we got the shots and arms that allowed our kids to get back in school safely. So uh, at that that was a win and we can't forget the conditions we were under when we passed that bill. I also wanna to say to speak to your point that we have put in a rule, this Congress, uh, that is not there with every Congress, but we put in a rule, the last one and this one, that we would have a pay for for everything we do. And so you will notice, for example, in the big climate and healthcare bill, the one that invests in climate change action and the one that caps insulin prices for seniors and finally allows Medicare to negotiate the cost of prescription drugs, that is paid for by having the wealthiest, like billion dollar corporations finally pay their fair share of taxes because I pay my taxes, my constituents pay their taxes, and I think it's time that the wealthiest and these giant corporations just pay their fair share. So that is how I address spending. You have a pay for, and that's what we've done in these bills.
Um, just carrying on with that theme just a little bit, you know, there's no doubt you're looking ahead here. And if the, for the Fed is forced to really kind of kick this economy in the sh shins to bring on a recession to fight inflation, any policy ideas you have in mind going forward here in the next two years in this next cycle? When I think about the economy, I think about those hundred town halls and the meetings that I have with people who, telling, who are telling me that this is a kitchen table issue for them. Um, I'm not an economist. I'm not gonna make grand prognostications, but what I will tell you is that when you sit down at the kitchen table and you look at your expenses and you look at your groceries and you look at your gas and you look at rent, you also look at what you're paying for your prescription medications. And that's why I voted to cap insulin prices and to let Medicare negotiate drug costs. You also, um, yeah, you also look at your energy bills. And that is why it is time for the United States to move toward uh, energy independence and why we put in provisions so that every individual household out there can invest in energy saving equipment, whether it's an electric cooktop or a heat pump to save on their own energy bills. And so sometimes this comes down to what you're feeling at the kitchen table. And I will add to that discussion at the kitchen table um, that a decision about when, whether, under what circumstances to have a child is also a kitchen table issue. I'm the only pro-choice woman doctor in all of Congress. And right now I am there to hold the line and make sure that women make their own healthcare decisions and not the government. And what I see happening around this country is downright scary and outrageous and dangerous. Uh, and that is yet another reason to send Dr. Kim Schreier back to Congress to stand up for people in this district. Last 30 seconds for you, give you a fun one. What's something people should know about Kim Schreier they don't? Uh, I think it would be fun for people to know that I never played sports before but I joined the women's congressional softball team basically out of guilt because if Donna Shalala can join at age 79, then Kim Schreier sure ought to be joining. So anyway, I joined the softball team and we just played Democrats and Republican women on one team, the press on the other team and the women, uh, the congressional women won. So uh, that's Congress one, press zero. All right, Dr. Kim Schreier, thanks so much for coming to Northwest Now. Thank you. Thank you. Good to talk with you. Republican Matt Larkin declined to appear on Northwest Now. So joining us now is a longtime member of the Northwest Now election team, PLU professor Michael Artime. Michael, welcome to Northwest Now. Great to have a member of our election team here on election night um, uh, provide some commentary for us. This is uh, the 8th congressional district race that we're taking a look at in this program. Um, why is the eighth so important from a balance of power perspective? I mean, this race is being watched nationally. Yeah, well, you know, the Democrats um, have an uphill battle in the House, and this is seen as one of the key races um, in the country. So um, if you look at uh, 538, um, the eighth is listed as one of the 50 most um, competitive um, House districts. The Cook Political Report has it as one of 22 um, toss-up seats. And um, we're really talking about a small margin of error for Democrats if they want to hold on to the House. And so it's being seen as, you know, one of these one of these key races that's going to determine the balance of power in Washington, D.C. The eighth is also interesting just as 
in and of itself is a district because it's it's um it's kind of built as a swing district in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, talk about some of those unique qualities. Give us a feel for the variety of constituencies um, within that district and um, how that leads to it being in play. Yeah, you know, the 8th is a really interesting district. So if you look at the 8th, the 8th includes um, King, Pierce, Nahomish, as well as Chelan and Catitas counties. Um, and in many ways, if you just look at the averages on a lot of demographic categories, the eighth looks pretty similar to the rest of the state. So for example, 68% of the residents identify as white. That is pretty consistent with um, other districts in the state. The median household income is about 20% higher than average in the state. Um, education is also right in line with um, state numbers with 36% having a bachelor's degree. Um, and it would be easy to look at those numbers and think, this looks pretty similar to the rest of the state, but that doesn't account for the fact that there's a pretty significant rural-urban divide um, in that area. And um, in the liberal pockets of the district, um, it's becoming more liberal. In the conservative parts of that district, it's becoming um, more conservative. So um, it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting dynamic. About 57% of voters in the district are in King County, um, but there's also about 7,000 square miles of um, rural area um, in the district as well. So, um, so it's a really interesting microcosm of, of the state, which is often in tension between rural communities and more populous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who really matters in the 8th district? Could Kim Schreier win just by owning suburban progressives um, on the east side? Or do you need the red, the geographic area of the red part of that uh, district going into Kittitas County and some of those places. Is that essential? Is that is that essential for a pathway to victory or not necessarily? I don't think you can strike out in those areas entirely. So certainly the key is going to be to get out Democratic voters um, in those, you know, populous urban areas. But you can't um, ignore, uh, you can't ignore the rural areas as well, the more rural areas. You're going to need some support. So. Um, so you've seen her, you know, run ads about standing up to the Biden administration, um, even though, you know, she has she has a voting record that's, you know, 100 percent in line with the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. It's still important for her to demonstrate that she is independent. She's also been using the campaign to highlight instances in which she's engaged in bipartisanship. Right. Um, so these are efforts to show that show that she's not um, she's not too liberal for perhaps um, some of those more conservative voters in more rural parts of the district um, mm -hmm. to support. And we, in our discussion, um, Matt Larkin didn't want to appear on this program, but my discussion yeah. with Kim, um, she made a point that, you know, she's actively sought out the Agriculture Committee yeah. Um, yeah. To, yeah. To, to engage in that and to provide representation um, to those folks, even though they aren't necessarily aligned with her on a lot of other issues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's a that's a that's a good a good strategy to demonstrate that she can both work within progressive circles, but also she cares about the interests of more um, rural parts of her district as well. Kim's position as a pediatrician and a healthcare provider puts her in a little bit of a unique position on certain issues. One of them, of course, is abortion. Her, her position on that is no secret. In the past, um, Larkin has talked about uh, no exception for rape or incest when it comes to abortion. And I'm wondering, even in red Washington state, is that too extreme even for the red portions of Washington state? Yeah, you know, I think that, the, you know, at least if you look at if you look at polling data for uh, for even even Republicans, um, there's there's at least a small amount of opposition to rape 
uh, uh, rape and incest um, being included in um, in abortion bans, um, and it's those are unpopular positions with independent voters in particular. So if if Larkin is going to appeal to independent voters, um, the more that um, the the Dobbs decision, the more that um, abortion is within um, the conversation, that might that might hurt his chances. Yeah, it augurs, and you, you've seen a lot of not necessarily in this race, but around the country, a lot of um, Trumpist Republicans. Um, starting to move to the middle. Uh, yeah. There's been a lot of documentation of that. It's been very interesting to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, even among even among conservatives, there's a rejection of, you know, sort of across the board um, bans. And so um, the types of positions that Republican candidates had to stake, uh, stake out in primaries are now um, kind of putting them in vulnerable positions as they move into general elections where they're trying to appeal to a wider electorate. Which circles back to this, I think, rather cynical strategy that the National Democratic Party engaged in, which is trying to promote, actually help Trumpist Republicans and, and, and help extreme right-wingers win elections so they could face them in the general. Yeah. That's backfired then on them a little bit, though, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, I would be wary of that. I think if there's anything that 2016 shows us, it, it's that um, trying yeah. to predict the outcome yeah. can be uh, can be tricky business. And so, um, you know, I would be careful of promoting um, dangerous candidates um, in any part of of the country, um, assuming that they're not going to have success in the general election. A number of different things, unpredictable things, can happen in a general election campaign, and um, and that could lead to some pretty bad outcomes. Yeah, because it can unleash some of the the darker angels in yeah. the electorate that maybe aren't front and center, but if given the chance, who knows? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, one of the things, uh, I think folks know this, but I wanna reiterate it, you also, one of your areas of study is the relationship of the media mm -hmm. to politics and how those interface. Um, once again, Matt Larkin had no interest in, in, in coming on this program, that's fine. I don't suggest that the, uh, you know, the seat in the 8th Congressional District runs through Northwest now, yeah. but I will say, is it becoming, is that a trend? Is it becoming less necessary for the mainstream media to carry a message? Can you do it yourself basically by creating your own media and your social media campaigns and, and kind of having a do-it-yourself thing? Or do you know you still need editorial, you still need uh, television commercials, you still need big budgets? Where are we right now? Because I do sense a change, but I don't know where we are. Well, it depends on who you are as a candidate. So I think that for somebody like Larkin, it would have made sense to come on this program. It would make sense to take advantage of any media opportunities that are available to you because the name recognition isn't quite as high as some other candidates. And so one of the things that's important is that voters get to know who you are. They know who it is that they're voting for. Um, that can only happen if you make yourself visible. If you're somebody who has lots of name recognition, you can go it on your own a little bit more, um, you can you can take uh, you can take advantage of only media opportunities that seem to be in more friendly news outlets. Okay, um, you can and, cherry pick a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. you can do a little bit more cherry picking if you're somebody who has lots of name recognition. But I think that that's uh, a little bit more of a, a risky strategy if people don't already. Um, know who you are. I mean, to a certain extent, um, these races uh, have become pretty nationalized. I mean, they do. Yes, it does. Um, it does matter um, in terms of um, you know what is going to happen at the. Well, at there's the so much national the balance of power. There's so much yeah. national money pouring in for those yeah. reasons. Yeah. So you're going to get um, diehard Democrats, diehard Republicans who are going to turn out and vote for the D or the R on the ballot. Um, but there's there's folks who uh, do need to know who you are and need to understand who it is that they're voting for. 
um, and especially if you're a challenger in these races. So I think that um, I think local media um, is still really important um, and, and should be a tool that um, that some of these campaigns take advantage of more. And on in terms of we talked about the editorial side like Northwest now, but there's also the 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 inventory um, on the avails for television commercials that drive everybody crazy because they've taken every availability, yeah. which is great for the television industry, sure. but not so great for the viewer. Um, do you think that's a trend that's going to change or no? Television, broadcast television and getting on cable and getting on those, uh, those television commercials on is still going to be um, important, if not crucial, in the foreseeable future? Uh, it will still happen. It is still going to happen. Um, in 2020, um, there was more television advertisements than in 2016 and 2012. Hmm. Um, and, and so we don't see campaigns moving away from that. And even though there are, um, there's online advertisements, there's different ways that you can advertise um, than in the past, broadcast media is still the number one choice um, for these campaigns when they're choosing um, to advertise to the electorate. So I don't see that going um, away anytime soon. I mean, there's different debates um, within political science about uh, you know the degree of effectiveness um, mm -hmm. of of these ads, um, and so uh, so there, there's a question as to whether they change voter behavior. But campaigns believe that they're important and they're yeah. going to keep relying on them moving forward. Last thirty seconds, and I love that comment because people in surveys will always tell you, "I hate the negative ad." Yeah, but yeah. then you do the attitude research and some of the other research follow up, they work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, I talked about this with my students before. I don't think they're gonna go anywhere um, anytime soon. And there's, there's a debate about whether you can even learn more from negative ads than you can from positive ads, uh, you know, showing people walking around with their dog or whatever. <laughs> yes, the classic cliche uh, campaign commercial. Yes. <laughs> walking, walking with a dog and shaking hands with veterans and exactly. all the important constituencies. Exactly. All right, Michael, our time, thanks so much for coming to Northwest Now. We look forward to having you on election night. All right, happy to be here. The Democrats hold a razor-thin margin in the House of Representatives. The bottom line, this race in the 8th Congressional District may prove pivotal. I hope this program got you thinking and talking about it. 